Welcome to Respect, Relate, Connect, the official podcast for Living Room Conversations, a nonprofit organization focused on building understanding and bringing people together through guided conversations since 2010. Welcome to this month's episode of Respect, Relate, Connect, the official podcast for Living Room Conversations. I'm your host, Stuart Fletcher, and I'm honestly really excited about today's guests. But before we get to that, um, I'm going to give a little bit of background on the organization itself. Living Room Conversations is a nationwide nonprofit that offers a simple, sociable, structured way to practice communicating across differences. Rather than debating or arguing with people, we take turns to share, learn, and be curious about what other people are trying to say. We create conversation guides, host events, and work with partners to bring communities all across the country together and to heal all the social divides that we can see popping up nowadays. But now on to our guests. With me today are Manu Meal, CEO of Bridge USA, Jessica Carpenter, Chief Marketing Officer for Bridge USA, and one of my good friends and probably the funniest person I know, Dennis Whitley the Fourth. And I made sure I put the fourth in there. That's in your official title, so I didn't want to leave that out. So we're gonna jump in with an introductory round. If you guys have the conversation guide that I sent you in front of you we can kind of reference that and it'll be the first round introductions. We're each going to go around and answer these four questions, your name, where you live, and what drew you here. And if this is your first conversation. And I'm going to ask for Manu and Jessica, if you guys can tell us a bit about the work you do with Bridge USA, just so our listeners can know. And we'll kind of go in this order. I'll go first. And then we'll go to Dennis, and then we'll go to Jessica, and then Manu, and then that'll be our cycle there. So my name is Stuart. I live here in Utah right now. I'm going to Brigham Young University. I'm right at the edge of the Rocky Mountains, so that's really fun for me. I am the social media manager for Living Room Conversations. And so because of that, I've been in several conversations but this is the first I've had with my friend Dennis and all of you guys. So I'm excited. Awesome. Uh, great introduction, Stuart. Hi, everybody. My name is Dennis. I am a software developer based out of Washington, DC. This is my first conversation, but hopefully not my last. And I enjoy long walks on the beach. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much, uh, Stuart, Dennis, for having us on uh, Amazing Organization Living Room Conversations. My name is Manu. I help lead um, Bridge USA with uh, my friend Jess Carpenter and some other amazing friends. I'm based out of San Francisco and I'm kind of boring and just like to read, you know, beach is all right, but just like to read. That's my, that's my jam. Hi guys. Um, I'm super excited to be joining you uh, for this conversation today. My name is Jessica. I am from Arizona. I currently live there. I was born and raised in Arizona. Um, I got involved in Bridge because I didn't really know where I stood uh, when it came to politics, but I knew that I wanted to learn from other people. So this is kind of like the culminating spot uh, where I've found out how to do that. And I really enjoy traveling. Um, I've been able to do it a lot more with work, um, which I'm super grateful for. But 
yeah, traveling is one of my favorite things to do. We almost had the time zone bingo. If either <laughs> me or Jess had lived just a couple states east, we would have had all four time zones here. <laughs> Dang, because we got both coasts and then us here kind of in the southwest Rocky Mountain states represented. Remind well, me next time I'll find us a central person. I know. I Unfortunately, uh, the statistics are against us because there literally aren't that many people out there. You should have got me before daylight savings. I could have been our mountain time. Oh, next time. I missed this, but Dennis, where are you based? Oh, Washington, D.C. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. That's where we met. Almost. Okay. Where'd you, how'd you all meet? Dennis, do you want to tell the story? Sure. We had a mutual friend. Um, if I remember correctly, I want to say Stuart went to high school with our friend Nicole. And I met her from an anime convention. So, you know, nice little span on that one. Um, Nicole and I wound up hitting it off and became friends. And down the line, we actually got a chance to meet Stuart. I think he was in town visiting from Utah one time. Uh, and it was one of those immediately. I would start a joke, he would finish it. And I, he says that I'm one of the funniest people he's ever met. That's because he can't meet himself. And he'd know that the, that the feeling is very mutual there. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't want to tell you that I think I'm the funniest person I know. You're, you're the funniest person I've ever met. <laughs> I had a few questions I wanted to ask Manu specifically before we jump in, just because you're somebody, and I mentioned this over email, that I've really wanted to meet because I don't know, there's something very inspiring about a, a person my own age or, you know, close to our age working in the bridging movement i think that's so cool to me and so i wanted to ask you a couple questions if that's all right i was reading in your um, forbes 30 under 30 segment that you were inspired to start bridge california after like milo yiannopoulos came to the university of california and there was that big violent reaction to it in the several years since has there been another event that has inspired you to like redouble your efforts in the bridge building space? Yeah. I mean, Stuart, one of the things that my parents always warned about was setting expectations too high. So you've, uh, you've set the expectations too high and now I'm supposed to, to meet them. Dennis, I'm so sorry that you have to sit through that introduction. Um, I would just say, you know, a, a couple of things, Stuart, and it, most importantly, I would say that I, the inspiring events, and we can talk about Milo in a little bit, but the most inspiring events for me are actually getting notes from people like you, you know, when you're saying, you know, that I'm doing something that's helping inspire folks to do something to get out there, because the fact of the matter is building anything, you know, whether you're building an organization, a company, a business, a podcast conversation, um, it's hard. It's a really arduous path. And no matter how much I can sit here and wax poetically about how inspired I am on a daily basis, honestly, some days are really difficult. And I do this work primarily to inspire, ensure that other young people that are way smarter than me continue to keep acting. And that's why I do the work I do. So hearing notes from people like you are, are is actually my sort of inspiring moment. And every time I get asked a question around that, I always try to reflect on what is the most recent point of inspiration. And actually, honestly, your email was the second most recent point of inspiration. Um, and that's how you know I'm being uh, honest. The, the second thing that I would just say in response to your question is I would not be able to do the work that I'm doing without... Um, the amazing leaders like Jess Carpenter on this call and and other folks across our network, you know, uh, 
we half joke about this, but the movement that we're building that is Bridge USA exists to help young people feel empowered so that they can make a difference and build a world that is much better and more effective and productive and calmer and more peaceful than today. And I don't think that's possible with just me, um, because frankly, we would be half the organization we are today if it was just about me. And I have been given the privilege of seeing that kind of movement firsthand. I actually have been to several bridge BYU events here in my community. And from what I understand, there's, I think, 43 or more chapters at this point ranging across the United States made up like almost entirely of Gen Z. Do you think that there's like a difference between the current generation's ability to bridge build than the previous generations? I'm curious what um, our other, you know, Gen Z folks on this call think. Like, you know, I'm curious, Dennis, what you think or just what you think about that because I'm like one sliver of of our generation. But I would say from my vantage point, um, Stuart, that it's not so much a question of whether or not our generation is more likely to bridge or less likely to bridge. It's a question of whether or not we as a generation are willing to take up the challenge that every generation gets passed down on from Washington to Lincoln to FDR to Reagan to Obama to Trump, name your person, name your generation. What is unique about our generation is twofold. I think one is that we are, I think, the most diverse generation in the history of not only the United States, but democratic societies, given intermarriages, given uh, 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 both integration society and sort of progress from a racial standpoint. Because we are so different, we're not only constantly living with difference, but we are constantly learning how to navigate difference. Difference to us is not an aberration of society. It is a norm. I think the second reason why our generation is uniquely equipped for this work is because if we don't get our act together, I think this democratic experiment fails. I think we're at a point where we need our temperament, our mindset, the notion that we have to listen to each other. We have to put aside party labels to put the progress of the country ahead of us. We have an ambitious, amazing democratic experiment that requires us to live up to the moment. And I think our generation is uniquely equipped to do that. The fact that you're hosting this conversation um, in in Utah, the fact that you visited our chapter at BYU is just one example of the fact that people in our country and our generation are getting involved and getting active. And I know I've definitely seen in my own life, every person to some degree is politically active. Where I don't know if that's always been true. Well, I know Je- Jess would have a lot to say on this. I actually would... It, challenge a little bit on this point, which is, I don't actually know if our generations, I don't, I don't actually think a lot of us are that politically active, actually. If I, if I am honest with you on my perception of this, I think that while you're seeing higher and higher turnout, I think a lot of people in our generation are genuinely just disappointed, frustrated. Um, I think a lot of us are very apathetic. Um, I think a lot of us are trying to figure out what this whole democracy thing even means, why getting involved does anything. Um, but to your point, I think we feel that call of service. I think we have to answer that call of service. So whether or not we want to get involved, I think we got to get involved. And, and so I hope you're right. Dennis, Jessica, do you guys have anything you wanted to add to what Manu has said already? Um, yeah, I can jump in there. I agree a lot with what Manu said about our generation specifically being the most diverse in the history of America, I think 
being exposed just growing up to people who looked different from us um, and that was more normal really opened our eyes to maybe past injustices or inequalities that have yet to be actually addressed um, and see solutions going forward. So I think that's why you see a lot of young people so active, especially in human rights issues, uh, on racial issues, on uh, women's issues, things like that. I think, yeah, we're we're recognizing that from before. And as far as more young people getting involved. I, again, agree with Manu where I think a lot of young people are more apathetic. I mean, with political division, you see gridlock in policy, you see arguments and extremism and sensationalism in the media, and it totally turns you off. Like if you're being told that there's almost nothing you can do as a young person, you feel hopeless, there's almost no reason for you to wanna to get engaged. So I think that turns a lot of young people off. I think at the same time, we are also very exposed to politics where you see it in the media, on social media, um, in your family, within friend groups, influencers, celebrities that you follow in sports now. And I think it's hard for us to get away from politics, whether or not you actually participate is a different story. But I think that's why a lot of people or it can be perceived that a lot of young people are getting more active is because it's kind of thrown at them in uh, every direction. And you almost have to decide where you stand on like every issue, which is also very stressful. What do you think, Dennis? I'm curious. Uh, tough act to follow with both of you two, but I think that you guys have made some stellar points. I think one of the major things, oh, can, is my, sorry, is my mic working? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, just making sure, sorry, the, the symbol wasn't adjusting for a second. But yeah, I think, um, I think Manu and Jess made some stellar points. And I think one of the biggest things being about young people both being more exposed but also less active is an interesting point that i think that i concur with i think that because of the fact that from a much earlier age we're bombarded with a lot more like uh, i guess i've got my nieces and nephews who are who have their own tablets and stuff like from a much earlier age than i ever did they're online and their parents do the best to moderate them and to the best of my knowledge i don't think i've seen them watching too much crazy stuff yet but for my sister who is starting high school and things like that she's like a lot more active on social media and why and will sometimes come up to me and say what do you think about x y or z political issue and i'm like where did you hear about that TikTok, and it is kind of an interesting thing to see people that are much younger that are much more aware to an extent but at the same time incapable of actually acting upon the knowledge that they have and are in some cases also only presented with a single slice or slide of this of the story based off of whichever influencer they happen to be following or whoever happens to be shaping the narrative that they're getting it from. I think that for me, a personal thing that I enjoy researching is like digital literacy. We're at an age where we have a lot more access to digital information and a lot more information than ever before. But oftentimes it comes too late how to discern what's good information, how to go against, how to go against your own beliefs, how to say, am I believing this because of the fact that it's what somebody I trust told me or is it because of the fact that this is something that makes sense to believe? And I think that going back to what Manu and Jess have both said, finding a balance between the two where we have access to more people, but actually using it to engage with people in a constructive manner is something that I think a lot of people are trying to get into in Gen Z. That is like where we're seeing a lot more, I guess, I, I don't wanna say friction, but where it is that people are having trouble actually getting out of their own echo chamber and finding people to have conversations with. 
Well, and thank you, Dennis. That is a perfect segue into kind of the conversation around living room conversations because our entire point as an organization and similar with Bridge USA, it's similar to any other bridging group out there is that we have found that people desire connectivity and that they desire finding common ground, but they don't have the outlet or the structure to do so. Lots of the time, when, like you mentioned, your echo chamber is only one thing. And so when you are exposed to something outside of that, it's like a shock to your system. It surprises you. It throws you off. And when you're not integrated with people who think differently than you all the time, you start to think that people who disagree with you must be crazy because you don't see that all the day, all the time. So I, I want to go into kind of our living room conversation here today. We are going to talk about the guide, the America we want to be founding aspirations, which is one of my favorite guides throughout living room conversations. We have over 170 different conversation topics that you can choose from. And they range from politically divisive issues to just social issues that we want to talk about. Even I just had a conversation about humor the other day, nothing to do with politics. It was just a cool way to connect with people. And so we're going to head into this guide, the America we want to be. And the first step we're going to do is we're going to read the conversation agreements. If you turn back to the guide that I sent out right underneath the introductions, is the conversation agreements. It's six little bullet points. They operate as kind of the guidelines for how to have a civil conversation. And we're going to go through, and I'll read the first one, and then Dennis, if you'll read the second, and then Jess the third, and then Manu the fourth, and we'll go around, and we'll hopefully all agree to live these six guidelines, at least for the duration of this conversation. And I invite everyone who's listening to... Think about each of these and find one to focus on while we go through the rest of our conversation. So the first one is be curious and listen to understand. Show respect and suspend judgment. Note any common ground as well as any differences. Be authentic and welcome that from others. Be purposeful and to the point. Own and guide the conversation. So all six of those have been identified by our dialogue experts as six different quadrants that, when not followed, cause conflict in conversations. And so I'm excited you guys all agree, right? We're... Stuart, it would be really funny, man, if we just started disagreeing on the conversation agreements. We didn't <laughs> get past step one. I, I should have uh, <laughs> thought of that beforehand. You should do a blooper episode where we just debate the conversation statements. <laughs> Actually, I've, I've pitched the idea of having a conversation about each agreement because I think that'd be interesting. But I don't know how you would have that conversation if you don't agree to have the conversation. So we're going to head into round one, which is a little bit more introduction, getting to know each of us a little bit more. And I'm going to read it out. Each participant can take one to two minutes to answer one of these questions. What are your hopes and concerns for your community and or the country? What would your best friend say about who you are and what inspires you? What sense of duty, mission, or purpose guides you in your life? So again, we'll go in that same order. I'll go first and then Dennis, then Jessica, then Manu. 
So to answer, I'm going to go with the first question. What are your hopes and or concerns for your community or country? Whew. That's a heavy question. I feel like you could have a whole conversation just about that. I have always felt a very deep intrinsic love for the United States. My father comes from literally Mayflower stock. Like he is old, as old an American as you can be. We're not that old, old of a country. But he, he can trace his lineage all the way back. They, he had people fight in the Revolutionary War. He's had people in every state probably at this point. But my mom came here when she was 18 from Guatemala. And so she has an exact opposite perspective and relationship with the United States. And I loved learning at both of their feet. My dad has a very idealistic, hopeful perspective on what America is to him. He, grew, he went to school in Boston. He grew up outside of New York. He has this almost Americana filter when it comes to understanding our history. And it's beautiful. And I, I love the way he sees our country. And it's interesting to hear my mom say things from her perspective, from perspective of a country that has, you know, been on someone under the boot of the United States at times, a country that has none of the privilege the United States has, a country that has almost nothing in common culturally, not even the same language. One of my hopes for the United States is that we can find a balance between those two perspectives, between an idealistic, hopeful version of the United States and a more maybe realistic, sometimes negative version. I would love for us to find the truth in between and hold that dear. That's what I want. Dennis? A stellar starting point, Stuart. I guess I will follow in your footsteps and go with the second question, which is what would your best friend say about you and what inspires you? And I think for me, for most of the people that know me well, they know that what really motivates me is just being able to get together with people and have a good time. I think one of the things that I definitely started to realize that I prioritized both actively and subconsciously after COVID, like after people were vaccinated and we could actually see people again, was making time for people, making time for people that I value in my life and making sure that I see them on a regular basis. And in some cases for people that live in the area, that is a couple times a week maybe or once in the month, depending on how our schedules line up. But in other cases, there are some people that I know that I've got friends in New York. I've got one of my closest friends just moved to Texas. It might only be once or twice in the year, but making time for people and things that I guess making time for connection with people around me that actually makes me feel good and that I feel it's a mutual connection that I feel a mutual connection with. And I think that's slowly but surely started to creep out into trying to be able to make more connections and growing a sense of community. Definitely didn't start out like that. It was just a, I haven't seen several of these people in like a year now. Let me try and see them as often as I can. But the more that I do see them, the more I'm like, man, there are other people that live in the area too, trying to actually get outside, get out my shell and making sure that I'm meeting more people and trying to get around to investing in the community and the larger world around me. Well, I feel like I have to do the third one now, so I will do the third one. Um, what sense of purpose or mission drives or guides your life? I 
haven't really thought about this until trying to come up with an answer right now. What I will say is I like for people just to feel proud about themselves or feel good about who they are, whether it's like little hobbies that they have that might be quirky or where they come from. Uh, and I feel like that's one of the great things about our country is we're literally a melting pot of people coming together with different cultures, ideologies, languages, hobbies, businesses. And I think that's something that's incredible. I'm afraid that it's something that's been lost on Gen Z, where it almost, again, kind of feels like this country is against them because the foundations are like a little bit rocky for some people. And so to kind of like, I guess, maybe tie the first and the third question together, a part of my mission um, is just showing people what they bring to the table and the fact that you are unique, you're different, and you have something to offer. And I think that's ultimately how we create like a better country uh, and move us forward into the next however many hundred years, hopefully, uh, we have is kind of as one. Yeah, you know, I don't even remember if there's a fourth question to answer, but I just wanted to reflect on on what you all have said. And the reason why I, I really liked all three sort of, and a lot of those those answers resonate with me, but particularly yours, Stuart, when you were talking about balancing ideal with the flaws. Literally today, the the podcast episode that we're focused on is about how you balance a critique of America with an admiration of America. And there's something interesting, you know, so we're launching this new show called The Hopeful Majority. And the idea behind The Hopeful Majority is that we want to figure out how to build a coalition of people that are not focused on left-right, but are focused on a mindset and a behavior. Forget left, right. We all agree that we have to show up to the room listening, be open, have conversations, have dialogues. We're going to be open-minded, not closed-minded. We're going to be open to empathy, not exclusion. Let's agree on that. Your conversation rules, essentially. The flag, the, the logo of that podcast is a giant American flag. Now, you've got an American flag behind you. I don't know if this is an audio-video podcast, but if, if it's just audio, sorry, I'm outing Stuart. There's a giant American flag behind him. Now, now, what's fascinating is when I was thinking about making that the logo, you know, there's a lot of advice. It's like, don't do that. That's a very polarizing thing, you know, which is so sad about the state of sort of the country and where we are right now. And I thought about it for a moment and I, I latched onto something you said, Stuart, earlier, which was that I intrinsically love America. Now, to me, I think a lot about love and nation and country and what it means to actually love. As far as I know, love involves admiring, deeply respecting, appreciating, and love also involves accepting the flaws and understanding the challenges. Love is not just a one-sided coin. And so on the podcast, I opened it with saying, I love America. And I instantly said, I know for a fact that we just alienated half the audience if you just clipped that. But I aspire for us to get to a point where we can hold what are two seemingly conflictual ideas, love and admiration with critique and acceptance, and recognize that if you want to build the democratic experiment that is purpose-driven, that as Jess is saying, is driven by people feeling proud of themselves, that as Dennis, you're talking about, is something where we are connected. To build that experiment, we have to hold this fact that we've got something great and we've got something that has some challenges. So let's iterate on that because that's what the founding fathers would want. So it's just like, to me, it's just crazy. We live in this moment where we can't recognize and hold a logical position. 
of simple love and admiration with a balance of acceptance of flaws. So that's what I hope and admire for. Manu, you and I are men of the same mind, I think. Because while you were saying that, I was like, you just exactly define how I feel about patriotism. That it's not an, an, a blind love. It's a love and admiration mixed with a critique and an understanding that just because you love something doesn't make it perfect. In yeah, fact, I mean, Je I, I would just really quickly just invoke Jess here for a second because we talk a lot about this um, of just like to your point of of patriotism and, you know, uh, reflection. Um, we were just having this conversation, I think, recently about like this fact that I think people in our generation are just craving, you know, what is possible. They're craving purpose. So, yeah, yeah, I think we're all feeling it. It's funny that you've already created a tribe in this podcast. You and I against Jess and Dennis. The divides Perfect. have been set. Divides have been set. That's what I like to hear. That's what we're all about here at Living Room Conversations in Bridge USA. So round two is going to be kind of all of our, our meaty big questions. And before we jump into that, there's a paragraph at the top of the page that we're going to kind of read is the background information. It's right underneath the picture of the American flag. It starts with when the declaration. Do I have someone who's willing to read that for us? I just found it. I will happily give it a read aloud. Perfect. Thank you. Making sure it's the one that starts with when the declaration, correct? Yes, sir. All right. When the Declaration of Independence was written, not everyone was included in the famous statement about the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And while the aspirations expressed in our founding document resonate for some more than others, there are many views regarding the degree to which we have advanced these aspirations for everyone. Some focus more on the great strides we have made. Others point out how far we still need to go. Some believe that focusing on the past prevents forward progress. Others think we still need to come to terms with our shadow side. So already we have touched on this topic several times, whether on purpose or by accident, about understanding a kind of focusing on the past. Does it prevent progress? Do we need to focus on the past? Does that help us move forward? So I'm going to read out several questions that will spur our conversation. And then after I'm done reading these, we'll go into a reverse of that cycle. We'll start with Manu, then we'll go to Jess, then Dennis, and then we'll go to me. And after each of us have been given our little moment to be on the soapbox to some degree, we'll open it up and it'll be a lot more of a, a free, less structured conversation. So I'm going to read through these questions. As you reflect on America's founding aspirations, what are your thoughts and feelings about our country today? What local, state, or federal policies support your pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, which inhibit your pursuit? How have you seen local communities support their citizens in achieving their aspirations? What role, if any, do you experience our history playing in America today? How does your ideal modern America reflect its founding aspirations and past? What is your personal commitment to creating the America you want? And then Manu, you can take any of those that you want and this is your time. I like it, now I have choice. I now have the freedom of choice. 
Um, I would just, I would probably take um, the first question, which is, I think, just how do you feel about the country or the state of, of America? Um, so this is going to sound incredibly naive to to probably anybody listening, but I feel fantastic. And I'm not just some, you know, naive optimist that just wakes up every day thinking that, hey, all we just say is keep saying hopeful things and things will get better. But here's why I specifically have the perspective to keep going and feel fantastic about where we can be as a country. You know, right now we're having a conversation, four of us. Uh, we've got one woman, one person that has family from India, a Dennis from based out of Washington, D.C. I don't know your background. We got Stuart based out of BYU. He's got parent ancestors dating all the way back to the Mayflower. And we're sitting here. We got an hour out of our day to talk about the state of our country and our democracy. That's not normal in the history of human nature and human democracies. Four young people that have the ability to say what's on their mind, to challenge, to push back, to have a conversation, to have a dialogue. If you came to India, where, I, where I'm from, and you and I had a conversation about the ruling party and what's terrible and what's bad, or let's have a dialogue, or let's push back, or you know what, give me some time and let me, let me tell you how I think about India. You know, That's a precarious position to be in. And so the reason why I have a ton of hope and optimism about where we are right now is because of the work that organizations like you are doing, the conversations that people like us have. And importantly, because I think to Dennis's point, it gives us the ability to have connection so we can actually keep moving forward. And so I feel great. This is a, this is a privilege to be here, to have the chance to talk and answer the questions that you're asking. I think it's amazing. And I think we got to preserve that, protect that, and push that forward. So that's how I, that's how I feel. I like that answer a lot. Um, I'm going to kind of, I think, take it, play off of it a little bit in mine. I'm going to answer the, how does your ideal modern America reflect its founding aspirations? Um, I think that America was built on some very good uh, fundamental ideals. You have freedom, freedom of religion, uh, freedom from tyranny, the ability to do whatever you want, self-governance. Uh, and essentially to build a life of your own, whatever that looks like. I Obviously, there's flaws. We've covered that. For one, women were left out of the Constitution, which is something I don't agree with. People of color were also not explicitly mentioned there. And I think we've done a very good job at kind of walking back and bringing more people into the conversation, especially as America has grown. And so I think my ideal modern America is literally what we're doing now um, and just keeping that going. So initially our country was literally founded for everybody to come here and seek freedom, idealism, individualism. And I think that by still pursuing that and recognizing where that comes up nowadays by more people having the ability to, to vote, by giving more people opportunities for education, again, for opening up businesses, to marry who you want, um, to do what you want with your family or your body or your career. All of these things are things that I think the country was meant for and founded for. There's been a lot of rocky uh, like barriers and things that we've hit along the way of reaching that uh, aspiration. But I think that the ideal modern America is when we finally do reach those aspirations and when we recognize that we do and then keep adding it wherever we've maybe not um, hit all of our like targets that we wanted to. 
stellar points Jeff. I think Jess and Manu both make some very strong points that I really agree with about the general trajectory that America has taken. But I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna play devil's advocate a little bit and actually just say, while I do believe that we've done a great deal in, in the time, in the just over 200 years that we've had, I do think there's still a lot of work to be done. For me, I think that the biggest issue that the country faces in, is due in no part to the citizens so much as it is just the structure itself in that we're incredibly reactionary when it comes to most things as opposed to being proactive. And I think that even going back to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution especially being drafted as a living document, I think that was very good on the foresight of, the, of our founding fathers to say, we don't have all the answers now. Let's make sure that people that can in the future say what they think it should happen. At the same time, though, it's also kind of feels like a case of, all right, something fell in the cabinet, but I got it closed quick enough that it's going to be the next person that opens the cabinet's problem. And, you know, I think that on the scale of a country, it is one of those things where because that's how things were started to begin with, this kind of kick the can down the road mentality has kind of become an issue that is that, that as we are quickly and quickly approaching the end of a road, at some point, somebody's going to have to either pick up the can, kick it off the cliff, or turn the other way and say, maybe we should kick it somewhere else. And while I do think that we have made strides there, I do sometimes wonder whether or not we actually are going to bridge the divide before we kick the can off the cliff, so to speak. To throw um, my kind of hat in the arena, I am a viciously optimistic person. I try to be as optimistic as I possibly can. Not always, obviously, but I, I firmly believe that there's no better way to live than to give people the benefit of the doubt and try to see the best in every situation. I, I wanted to look at what is your personal commitment to creating the America you want, which is the last question. Because I am also a man who firmly believes in the practical application of theory. I had a friend once who would always say, he said this like all the time. He says, goals without action are just dreams. Which I love because it, it motivates me to do something, to, to put things into action, to actually make a tangible difference. What is your personal commitment to creating the America you want? The thing that I always think about, which is my kind of career goal and the trajectory that I've set my life on, is that I am hoping in some way, I haven't created exactly the way yet, but I am hoping to work with help and bring some kind of respite to the Native American population of the United States. That's been my hope for years now. It's been a driving force behind me going back to school, behind lots of the work that I do. Because when I view the, the United States from my fiercely optimistic perspective, I see it as a country who generally, obviously not individually, but generally has made people's lives better. Has made people's lives better here in the States. Almost every single group, whether it be racial or gender or whatever, however we want to divide people up, almost every single group has had their lives improved by living here in the United States. I've seen it in my own family, from my own cousins who have painstakingly immigrated from Guatemala to here to be able to live a better life. But with that belief, I have seen that there's one group in particular whose life has only ever gotten worse. 
by America. And that to me is the Native Americans, the indigenous, the first nation, whatever term we want to use, the people who were here when the Europeans landed have decade by decade, person by person, gotten rights taken away and opportunities stripped down and hope and culture and so many things diminished. And so my personal commitment to create the America I want isn't to live in the past and say, oh, we did all these terrible things. Isn't that terrible? We should destroy ourselves. It's to live in the present and say, we did all these terrible things. What are we going to do now to fix it? I kind of just want to add on to what you just said, Stuart, because I'm in the same boat with you 100% when it comes to the Native um, community. I think I definitely agree. They have been left behind in so many ways. And I mean, if you look at all the treaties that have been broken throughout time, the fact that even now there's a huge, I don't know, I don't know if I should call it an epidemic of like missing and murdered women, indigenous women, that's never really been taken seriously off of the reservations. And there's also so many, like next to that, there's also so many areas where we could use Native Americans help, especially when it comes to environmental things that so many young people care about. They have their own conservation efforts and they know how to take care of the land because it was initially theirs. The last point I'll make kind of on that is I believe there's only five Native members in Congress, which again, doesn't give them a very large seat at the table when it comes to the affairs of the country that we also share with them. So I definitely agree with you. I think there's a lot of work to be done there, especially. Yeah, it's definitely, I don't want to get into the weeds of that issue because that's not what this guide is about, but it's definitely something that I hold very close to my heart. I had the opportunity to go to the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, which has an over 97% poverty rate. It is the most impoverished place I've ever seen or ever even heard of. And it's crazy to me to think that, that it just exists in the middle of our country. But to, to change the topic slightly, um, I was curious about what Dennis was saying, because you were kind of pushing back, I guess, against the, the more optimistic view of our modern America. What in your life have you seen help you come to that perspective? I think for me, one of the things is that um, a major influence growing up was my mother. She was involved in the education system for most of her life. And when she got out of the classroom proper and was still involved in education, she wound up actually leading a half state, half, um, half school um, what do you call it? 501c3 organization with the express purpose of helping Title IX schools make sure that families and students were able to get the resources that they needed to be successful. So I think looking at what she was doing head on from a local government standpoint, all of the pitched uphill battles that she had to fight to do good for people in the community that I grew up in. And while I know that, you know, one small example of a specific, of where I grew up, the amount of work that she had to take on and, and the amount of things that only got done because of the fact that she was personally motivated to go above and beyond the call of her station and still had pitched battles against her at various levels where it was difficult to even just get the support to do the right thing. I think that that is a microcosm of a larger issue that we can see mirrored and played out on different scales in the country. I can't off the top of my head come up with another blatant example, but I think that growing up seeing that, it definitely reminded me that there are good people who are working hard, but that because of the fact that ultimately 
in the end, I want to say that the funding did wind up drying up and that she did wind up having to step away from the position because of that. It is one of those things where from a in a broader any broader point where things that are important to the health and well-being of the country are oftentimes overlooked. Education being something that I'm particularly invested in because of my upbringing. Education, especially continually being defunded, overlooked, in some cases disparaged, just because of the fact that there are other hotter topics that you can throw money at that will increase turnout, that will get you more votes, and that will make you look more attractive in the eyes of whatever candidate you're in. I think that in a lot of cases on both sides, people are shifting the narratives from the places where there is middle ground, where both sides benefit from things being from things like being funded and increased to look at the topics that are more polarizing and that are easier to get people fired up one way or the other about. Yeah, you know, the, the question that just comes to mind for me for, for everybody, uh, maybe specifically building off your sort of assessment there, Dennis, is just, do, you, do, you, do we think that the incentives exist for politicians to actually solve the problems? Do you think that people actually are incentivized to solve problems or do we think that we're just incentivized to i don't know get to the next election and get to the next sort of uh primary and speak to the base and i don't know it almost feels like right now politics is the easiest it's ever been i mean i can tell you how you win in a republican or a democratic primary you say this that that and you'll get elected you'll turn out the base and you just be crazier than the other person so it almost it, it almost i wonder if it if we're actually incentivized to solve any of the problems or questions. I don't know. That's a curiosity I hold. Well, and to kind of respond, but also ask another question. Oh, sorry. Did I ask no, a question in your stead? <laughs> no, you're good. I, I, I'm curious based on your question, like, are we incentivized? I'm curious, like, is it the system's fault for not incentivizing the politicians or is it the people's fault for not demanding change? The question I would ask, oh, sorry, is Dan, I was just going to ask, what is the system? I hear, I hear people say the system a lot, the, the established, like, what is the system? I mean, it's pe I think it's just people. Like, it's just, I, I'm just, I'm curious a lot when we, when we, yeah, like, what do you mean by the system? When it comes to that question, I was framing it as in the system that we have set forth in the establishment of our government, like the literally the way that People win elections, electoral college, the different kind of representatives, the way that it's set up with the Congress and the Senate, the way that, you know, with the Federalist and when it's local and federal and everything else, is that system designed poorly or are we just using it poorly? I think I'd like to speak to that one because I think that both of you guys have touched on a very interesting topic here that I hadn't even considered. Because I think Manu's first question being, are we, are, are politicians incentivized to solve problems, which is definitely one where my first thought, like as soon as I heard that, I wanted to say, oh, of course they're not. And then I had to think, okay, but why aren't they? But I do think that by virtue of the representative democracy system, they are incentivized to talk about topics that stir people to vote. Nothing more, nothing less. They can tune out after that. But if they're incentivized to get up for one day out of the year or to request the ballot to mail in, then they've done the portion that actually matters to them in order to keep their job. And I think that it's, and I guess to talk about Stewart's part, is the system, is there an issue of the system 
or is it a matter of people not, not um, talking against the system? And I think that's actually a very interesting question that you've asked because of the fact that then it does bring up the question of what is the best way to tell the system or to talk, or to engage in the system that it has been created in a way that actually affects change. Because I do think that when you talk about the system being politicians and the people that collect them, I do think that it does also belie the fact that there are other interests that the politicians have that are financially motivated from large corporations. And I do think without getting too big in the weeds there, it is one of those things where it's difficult for an average person, even let's say a community of average people to effectively rally and say, here's what we need to do, or even to know what the correct course of action is to get their voices heard on the same level as whoever happens to be lining somebody's pockets. I think I kind of have like a counterpoint to all of this is I was looking up some stats really quick because I know a majority of people don't approve of Congress. 81% uh, of people disapprove of the job that Congress is doing. So as great as it sounds that we actually have the chance or the opportunity to change these things, we're not. And I think it is because the, the system that we have set up keeps elected officials in office longer than they should be. Our president is 70, what, eight years old right now. And if he runs and wins again, he will be, I think it was, let's do some math, 82 by the time he's done with his second term. How in any way does that reflect the majority of the American population, especially young people and millennials? I mean, that's completely, it's, it's, it's incredible to think about that. To be a little bit cynical here, because just to show my cards, I don't really like the government. I'll just say it. I think that how it works is you do have people who are kind of lining politicians' pockets. Um, that's how they influence different policy and laws that are passed or that are not passed. Uh, that's why you see a lot of problems with like our food, how unhealthy it is for us. It's because they make a lot of money off of that. But then you also have politicians who get in there. And I think they really, after a while, enjoy the power enjoy being there. They enjoy being able to get in those little fights or have a say in what's happening. And so they never end up leaving. And it's also hard when you get into elections is because you actually do have new candidates come in who are maybe more moderately tempered, um, maybe have different ideas or willing to work with people, but they're not excited and they don't get most of the media attention, which in my opinion is why Donald Trump was elected in 2016 as he was hogging the media. And I think that there are so many negative incentives for people to want to run for office or actually, let me back up. I think there's a lot of negative incentives for people to want to stay in office is once you get in there, you might be aiming to change things and make a difference, but then you only have so much that you can do in two years. And then after a couple months of being in office, if you're a member of the House of Reps, you're already trying to recampaign again. As a Senator, you have a little bit longer, but still there's no incentive for you to leave office because then, what do you do after that? You know, you have to go back and live with the regular people like us. So I think it's almost easier for them to just remain in office, even if they don't do anything. That's all, that's a campaign talking point that you can use next term is I'm going to solve gun violence. I didn't do it this time. I only had two years, but give me two more years. I will solve it for you. Oh, I didn't do it for you. Like it just, he keeps going. And I think maybe it's the system that perp perpetrates that. Maybe it's just individual greed. Um, I'm not really sure, but that's kind of my take on that is a little bit more cynical, I think. Hmm. Do you think that like modern politicians are living up to our founding aspirations? And if not, like, why do we, why not? 
Yeah. I think a lot of them are, have almost a savior complex um, where they get in hoping to help bring in other voices um, and make space and make change. But again, I think they do it for points, not because they see us as one unit um, and as one unit trying to move ahead. I think, and this is my own speculation and I'm coming up with this right now, but I feel like they might see it as multiple different moving parts, not one part of a big picture, which is also why a lot of politicians, that's also why polarization is such a thing is they see each other as opponents instead of team, team members. Like we might disagree, but we are working on the same team and the team is America. The team is the US. So I think that might be a little bit lost nowadays. I will say that there are people who are in office for the right reasons and who are trying to strive toward uh, living up to those American ideals. We just don't hear from them as much. I think Dennis, Jess, I think you 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 guys are making fascinating points. And honestly, this is this is like the the sixth conversation of the day, and you're getting me totally unfiltered, which I think is is exciting. Um, but it's like this is just a cool. I'm learning a lot actually from how we're thinking about some of these things. Here, there, there's just sort of um, two things I would just add, Stuart, and I and I like your definition of the system. I just want clarification on what you mean by that. Um, two things. I think the first is kind of to Jess's notion of what are these people actually there doing? You know, what is their purpose? Are they the right people? So I, for a very long time, used to have this perspective that like, we just need the right people in office, right? We just need the right people in office. And then I met almost, we got to meet a lot of them. And honestly, most of them are fine. They're fine people. They're nice. They're kind. They're just like us, honestly. Um, they're like you and I, you know, uh, I would not be surprised if, you know, you run for Congress one day, right? Um, I don't know if that's what you want to do, but I totally urge it because maybe you're the right person to do it, right? But they're just like us. And I think the question becomes, why does it seem to be that as folks enter a system, they come out different or it shapes their incentives? And I think a lot about the incentive structures. And I think that right now, I think we as people have a significant role to play in this equation because we do a lot to say that it's their fault or it's that system's fault or the establishment's fault. And yet at the end of the day, if you think about it, we still have the ultimate voice at the ballot box. Now, of course, there's a lot of nuance to that. Of course, you could say that your vote counts less in this area, your vote counts less in that area. But the fact is that it, it is our watch. You know, it, It's happening on our watch. I don't think you can abdicate responsibility. Um, so I don't necessarily disagree with Jess. I, I just think that we have to remember that it's not like these are different people. I think a lot of them are honestly similar to us. I think they have the same aspirations, dreams, they have families, they want to care for people. Um, I think there's a whole package of things that you could do to make their jobs better. I think you could make it so that you have term limits. You could think about age restriction. There's a lot that you could do there. The only other quick thing I would just say, Stuart, just because we're low on time is the last thing is I think we need to reframe our understanding of perfection. Um, we have this, humans are fundamentally imperfect beings from family to companies, to countries, to societies. If you are building something off of a unit that is fundamentally imperfect and always trying to get better, you will never get 
this notion of a perfect society. But I think we can aspire to that. And so I think we take our flaws and challenges not as setbacks and dents on our optimism and hope, but as a recognition that things will be imperfect. That's just the fact of life. And, and if we keep holding this frame that we are we are going to, and we have to have a perfect sighting, if we fall short of that, it's all lost, then I think we're selling ourselves a false narrative that'll keep us perpetually unhappy. Thank you. I, I definitely agree with the false narrative. There's a, a quote, and I know we're up, basically out of time here, a quote that I love by Robert Caro, who's a sociologist. He said, power doesn't corrupt power reveals we we bought into we've bought into a narrative that people in power become evil but he posits and i agree with it that people in power are just given the influence and the ability to show who they really are and so people when they're given enough power and they're a bad person then that'll show but if they're a good person it'll show too and i like to hold that hopeful truth to be like oh like you said maybe it's the right people maybe it's the right incentives there's a lot that we can do but maybe it's our expectations that might be misplaced i really appreciate you guys all being here i would go for another hour if i could and um i i want to quickly close with this last round it's the reflecting on the conversation round we'll just go with one of the questions and we'll just each go around very quickly to answer that. The one question is, in one sentence, share what was most meaningful or valuable to you in the experience of this living room conversation. And I can go first, and then we can go back to that original order. To me, I just loved hearing from all these different perspectives on what is America right now? Usually we talk about America in the past tense, but I really liked what Dennis was saying about a reactionary America, that maybe we aren't as proactive as we think we are. Maybe things weren't put in place as much as we want them to be, and we often just kind of react. We push the, you know, the buck down the line and hope that somebody else will, will actually solve the problems. And that was very interesting to me. It makes me inspired to think of what I can do to make sure I never do that. I think for me, I think everybody had some stellar points. And I think one of the ones that really came across to me strongly was the idea of what are the metrics that we should be using to measure the success or performance? What is the meter stick for an, for an effective system that is trying to accomplish whatever it needs to for its people? I think that this discussion really did kind of give me an epiphany on the, huh, what should we be using to measure the success for and how can we make sure that if, if that's our metric for success, what inputs can we as regular people do in order to make sure that we are continuing to steer our politicians in the direction that we believe the country should go in. And I think that overall, despite the fact that I hope I didn't come across as incredibly doom and gloom, but it is one of those things where I felt like it gave me a bit more of a realistic approach where it would be like, a, oh, okay, here is a here's a thought, here's a metric, and here's a pragmatic step that we could take to engage in order to lay the path forward. So I really did appreciate the question of, is the system, is, the, is it an issue with the system or with how people engage with the system and trying to figure out where those lines meet with each other to figure out what needs to change and at what ways. I really enjoyed this conversation. I also wish we had a little bit more time just because there were so many points brought up that I 
either wanted us to explore a little bit more or to touch on myself. So I think that's the beauty of having these conversations, uh, which is something that I, I take away is whenever we get into like group settings or political conversations like this, it gives me a lot of hope because it almost centers you again, where what you're exposed to all the time is those loud kind of extreme voices. And then you talk to your average person next to you and we're not as crazy as you might think. And I think that's super necessary. It's a nice uh, breath of fresh air to have. And I think it also shows me that there is a lot of nuance in a lot of things that we talk about. There's different ways to look at things and different ways to discuss things. And there's, there's always solutions that we could be finding and just foundations that we could be laying to find solutions to the challenges that we've brought up um, to things like that. So I've appreciated this. Yeah, I'll just be quick. I want to thank you, Stuart, for having us. Thank you, Living Room Conversations. It was it was a it was a very well facilitated dialogue, and I feel like you've got a great podcast podcast voice too. So so thank you for 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 doing this conversation. I would just say that you know earlier today I was uh, I was interviewing somebody and they'd said they had a fantastic quote, which was "Democracies remade every generation." And um, you know, Jess was just talking about this notion of us being with each other and how much hope that fills us with. I think that conversations like this always remind me that Twitter is not a real space. Real life is. And having these dialogues are what keep me sane and hopeful and optimistic. And importantly, like dig into the weeds of it, you know, get contentious. I think oftentimes people think that those of us that want to have these conversations are running away from debate. No, actually we love confrontation. And so I learned a lot. And the last quick thing, Stuart, your point about Native American history and then Jess, you all digging into that deeper was was fascinating. I'm going to think a lot more about that. I just didn't think about that perspective. If I could start my own podcast, it would be about Native American history. So look out for that someday. Wow. And great to meet you, Dennis. Yeah. yeah thank you all for being on here. It was good to meet uh, you, Jess, and you, Manu, in person. Uh, Dennis, I know you. <laughs> and, and I'm happy to see you again. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can find this guide and you can download it at livingroomconversations.org. Just go and have all the topics America we want to be. You can find the exact same guide that we went through today and have this exact conversation for yourself. Thank you all for joining us. You guys have a good rest of your day. All of our guides and our resources are free to use. Our work in healing divides is made possible through donations from generous supporters like you. You can donate at our website or you can join our Patreon to get exclusive content. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Living Room Convo and Facebook and YouTube at Living Room Conversations. Belonging starts with conversation.